You're listening to episode 82, part five of the series on Luella and Hedda for Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Luella Parsons was once the undisputed queen of Hollywood gossip, who then buckled under competition from Hedda Hopper in the LA Times during the 1940s. Perhaps the low point in Luella's professional career came when Hedda Hopper appeared on the cover of Time magazine in 1947. But after that, Luella rallied during a huge gala to celebrate the 25 years that she had spent with William Randolph Hearst. Luella recovered and caught two big scoops over Hedda, the so-called fairy tale marriage of Rita Hayworth to Prince Ali Khan. And then she broke the story that Ingrid Bergman was pregnant with her director Roberto Rossellini's baby, which had then gone on to ruin Ingrid Bergman's career in pictures. When we last left Luella, she was reeling from a series of hit pieces, which placed her in an unfavorable light as her stooge. Henry Luce, founder of Life and Time, had arranged his magazines to publish articles that cast Luella as an overly entitled ogre, next to the plucky new voice on the scene from Hedda Hopper. The media stoked the rivalry between the two women that serves as a sort of entertaining distraction from the two world wars that raged. The War of the Words in the American film industry pushed Luella and Hedda to compete for exclusives and scramble to remain relevant. While the two columnists employed a variety of tricks to get a hot story, the stars were hardly complacent. Stars rankled against the power Luella and Hedda had, and when possible, they took revenge. Sometimes the gossip queens were vexed by a star who double-planted a story. In other words, a star might swear up and down that only Luella or Hedda was getting an exclusive, when in fact both columnists were given the same story. Stars often denied a story when buttonholed by the scribes. Then other times, the stars planted fake stories to cover out what was really going on. And sometimes, the stars disappeared, often some hideout, until a new story came along to fill column inches. In his memoir, David Niven tells a story about how he planned an elaborate ruse to get a little revenge on Luella and Hedda. One night, Niven rang Ciro's and booked a quiet table for two at midnight. He arrived with Ida Lupino on his arm, who was not his wife, by the way. Niven was married to Georgis, a Swedish model, and had been since two years after the tragic death of his wife, Primmy, who died as a result of a tragic accident at a party in Tyrone Power's house. At the appointed hour in Ciro's, the Mater D's eyebrows rose to meet his hairline when Niven arrived with Ida Lupino. The waiter nearly lost the run of himself when Ida began nibbling on Niven's ear. After a while, photographers started to assemble in the bar. Then Isla Lupino's husband, Howard Duff, arrived for his quiet table for two with Georges on his arm. The maitre d' took them to the opposite side of the restaurant, keeping maximum distance between the two couples. Everyone in the joint was riveted to the unfolding drama, except the ones who dashed away to ring the gossip queens out of their beds. Suddenly, Niven caught sight of Howard Duff canoodling with his wife in the corner. He jumped up and knocked over the table, with Ida trying to hold him back. Niven and Duff met in the center of the dance floor. They performed all the macho grandstanding that occurs before a brawl. They removed their jackets and rolled up their sleeves. They circled each other. The crowd gaped in total silence. People in the back of the room stood on chairs to get a better view. Then the two men stopped. They embraced, kissed each other on the lips, and waltzed around the dance floor. The next day, both Luella and Hedda phoned with sharp lectures on how they did not appreciate being dragged out of bed in the middle of the night for a prank. 
For Christmas of 1943, bookshops were stocked with Luella Parsons' memoir. She took the title, The Gay Illiterate, from one of the barbed comments Nunnally Johnson had written in that hit piece with Sam Wood and Sidney Skolsky in 1939 for the Saturday Evening Post. Luella had sent a copy to her friend, David O'Selznick, suggesting he might like to adapt her life story to the screen. Selznick sidestepped the adaptation. He told Luella that she should serialize her biography for newspapers or magazines, or better still, she could turn it into a hit radio program. Luella's book flew off the shelves. During wartime, she had tapped into the audiences of women who are keen for a story about a young widow who blazons a career when women expected nothing more than marriage and children. The Literary Guild of America put the gay illiterate on its recommended reading list. Luella launched a successful book tour and sold war bonds at the same time for each signing. At the end of 1944, 20th Century Fox bought the rights to Luella's story for $75,000. Studio publicist imagined Luella's story on the screen as a tale about a plucky young widow who makes her way in the world with her child. They floated the idea of Claudette Colbert or Irene Dunn playing Luella. Although Fox promoted the idea, executives in the studio chalked the fee up to publicity expenses. It was good business to have the story rights, but they never really planned to produce the picture. In line with their usual jibes at Luella, Time magazine shredded the book and the author with a thinly veiled brand of misogyny. They wrote, the self-recorded soundtrack of a small town, intensely feminine mind, which for 30 years with unabashed enthusiasm and energy has been hanging over Hollywood's back fence. Although Time and Life's magazines consistently slated Luella's reportage, she was a dab hand at the celebrity profile, both as a means of selling a star image and in exercising her position within the film colony power structure. In January 1947, Luella published an article for Photoplay magazine that illustrates the layers of subtext found in her journalism. The piece is a master class of shade. It begins as one of her standard home and hearth pieces on the occasion of Betty Davis's pregnancy. She and Doki go to Betty and Sherry's for dinner. The men discuss the war, trading tales about battlefields, while the wives listen silently, adoring their husband's wartime sacrifice. But then, as Luella puts it, the ladies leave the men in the dining room to their war stories and have their coffee in the living room. Only the dames are hardly trading recipes or knitting booties for the little BD, not yet loose in the world. The real reason that they bow heads over porcelain cups is to meet about power. The two women have power, in print and at the box office. Luella begins the profile by taking a jab at her competition, a vague reference to the story that broke about Betty's visit from the stork. After rumors circulated that Betty was pregnant, she disappeared from her home in Hollywood. Hedda Hopper had guessed that Betty was hiding out in her Malibu beach house. So Hedda drove over and tried the door. It was unlocked, so she walked in, found Betty, and asked her point blank. Later, after Hedda printed the item confirming Betty's news, Luella published in her column the following response. Since Betty Davis has had so many unwelcome visitors, she has had to have her gate padlocked. The photoplay story is written with Hedda in mind as the audience as much as the casual reader. The feud with Hedda is the subtext as soon as Luella mentions the feud between Betty and Joan. Luella asks Betty about her feud with Joan Crawford, about the rumors that Betty did not want Warners to release Joan's humoresque in time to qualify for the Oscars, so she wouldn't be competing with her picture, Deception. 
Betty denied the rumors, arguing that she had no reason to compete with another star in the studio. Luella noted that Joan had a history of feuds in MGM with Norma Shearer and Jean Harlow, while Betty had never had a feud in Warner's. Reading Luella's profile, you get the sense that they are two generals of the film colony with a clear plan of attack. The lines are drawn all over the studio sandbags. In 1946, the Jurgens Woodbury Soap Company wanted to sponsor a show that aired after Walter Winchell's top-rated program. Initially, they selected Hedda Hopper as their ideal host, but Winchell strongly objected. Instead, he told them to hire Luella Parsons, and they did. Luella's 15-minute show was a mix of gossip, interviews, film recommendations, and a segment called The Woodbury Soapbox, where Luella read an editorial on any issue she chose. The subjects ranged from fashion to Hollywood politics to the dangers of sleeping tablets. Luella welcomed A-listers such as Joan Crawford, Clark Gable, Olivia de Havilland, Bogart, Disney, and Ginger Rogers. Luella's show was popular. Soon, she beat Hedda in the ratings. Luella's schedule was grueling. In 1945, she had signed for a monthly film column for Hearst Cosmopolitan magazine. She screened a dozen films at home every week. Luella woke at 6 a.m. each day to start writing to meet all of her deadlines. She also had contracts to write monthly articles for Photoplay and Modern Screen Magazine, plus her syndicated daily column and her weekly radio show. Perhaps because of the strain, she was hospitalized in 1946. One of her friends, Madeline Fields, who was called Fieldsy by her dear friend Carol Lombard, recalled that Luella suffered from a herniated diaphragm. Luella wore old-fashioned corsets and wound up in excruciating pain which persisted for years. In September of 1946, Sid Grauman invited Luella to sink her hand in footprints in front of his Chinese theater, which included Luella amongst an exclusive group of film stars. She was the only columnist among the stars memorialized there. Although by the 1940s, Luella had lost the monopoly over exclusives, the star still paid deference to her with news, visits, and gifts. Even a macho hothead like Frank Sinatra went to Luella with his hat in his hands. In 1947, Luella printed an item about how his temper tantrums in MGM would probably lead to the end of his contract. Sinatra had fired back a snippy telegram where he asked if Luella would care to make a wager on that. Later, when he cooled off, he had some manners put on him. Sinatra apologized and said he was overworked and confused. The following year, he was put on Hearst's blacklist for six months after Sinatra beat up one of the Hearst reporters. Sinatra then made the trek to San Simeon, hat in hand for both Luella and Hearst, to get back in the good graces in the press. In 1947, when Hedda Hopper appeared on the cover of Time magazine, Luella was despondent and stayed in bed for days. The article had again blamed their feud on Luella and served cruel personal attacks. Her friend and fellow Hearst employee, Adela Rogers St. John's, thought a party to celebrate Luella's 25 years with Hearst might improve the columnist's uh, spirits. Adela and a committee sent out 800 invitations to a banquet in the Coconut Grove held in March 1948. Hedda Hopper was not on the guest list. Initially, guests were charged $25 a plate to finance the party, but when Hearst found out, he picked up the tab, which came to be about $50,000. Hearst was bedridden, but he had his son present Luella with a gold plaque on the evening. Luella accepted the token 20 pounds lighter in a smashing white gown designed by Adrian. 
For the evening's festivities, Mervyn Leroy volunteered to direct the entertainment broadcast live on NBC Radio. It was an all-star affair. The stars turned out in their finest, except for Ingrid Bergman. When she received her invitation, she threw it away. Bergman's producer, Walter Wanger, insisted that she had to go. She could not risk offending Luella. In her memoir, Ingrid said she believed that Luella and Hedda had too much power in Hollywood. She refused to go. Wanger sent flowers and an excuse to Luella personally. If Ingrid knew what was going to soon happen, she would have set the card on fire. A sign that Luella's depression had lifted appeared in her column one day. In March 1948, she noted, Sometimes when I'm tired and the phone rings all hours of the day and night, I think it would be just so much easier to wash dishes. At least you'd get through. Then the joy of a scoop comes along and all is forgotten. Also in 1948, Luella's daughter Harriet had one of her biggest successes of her career with the premiere of the film she produced that was met with critical acclaim. I remember Mama garnered laurels in the press and appeared on the best list of the year. But one review stood out. When Harriet read it one morning, she rang her mother to make sure she had seen it. Then she told Luella that it was high time she rang Hedda and made peace. Hedda had written in her column, I remember Mama, and you will too, when you see the film, with all the elements of good theater and good cinema, humor, humanity, and hominess. It will be hard to forget. To Harriet Parsons, who found the story and produced the picture, must go a lot of the credit. When Harriet read Hedda's review, She rang her mother and said she must respond. Luella responded with, you know I never read Hedda's column, but then she got over it and decided to make the piece. Luella invited Hedda to lunch in Romanoff's. Hedda recalled the meeting. I was there early at the number one table. When Luella came in and sat down, mouths flew open and stayed that way. Every table seemed to need a telephone to alert friends. Around the bar was a mob six deep. In answer to telephone calls, more people arrived every minute. Nobody moved. Nobody knew what to do. Hedda confided that when they met, she noted that if they combined what they both knew, they could rock this town on its heels. Hollywood publicist Molly Merrick the dame who lost her column to Sheila Graham in 1936, observed that many people feared what would happen if Luella and Hedda got together and compared notes. Their feud sold newspapers and magazines. People chose side then just as they do now. After Collier's Magazine printed an article under the headline, End of a Beautiful Feud, a letter to the editor dripped with sarcasm that he slept better at night knowing that two people in Hollywood were on speaking terms. The editors printed their response. We look on the Hedda Luella peacemaking as a model for the UN to follow. Peace, no matter what, after war is wonderful. The press covered the luncheon meeting of the Gossip Queens. The Hollywood Reporter scribe noted that they had agreed to print the same items the following week, thereby erasing the competition between them. The writer noted, That's the trouble with this place. No lasting hatreds. Collier's Collier's Magazine reported, By Hollywood standards, this was as fantastic as if Stalin and Truman used identical texts in discussing the state of the world. Their luncheon date was used as the plot for a made-for-television movie. In 1985, Malice in Wonderland, starring Elizabeth Taylor as Luella Parsons and Jane Alexander as Hedda Hopper, premiered. It's hard to track down, but it's a real gem. It's the reason I decided to do this podcast series, by the way. It's fun, campy, stylish, and harbors the most subversive suggestion that their rivalry was really a publicity gambit. 
During the HUAC hearings and the blacklisting that followed, Luella upheld the conservative point of view. She condemned those with left-leaning views who worked in the studio system. But Luella had already been using another blacklist for years. That was the one that Hearst kept and updated on the regular, and her own, which featured the names of those who had given offense or slighted her or the chief. The fastest way to exit the list was to hand over a juicy exclusive and pay homage. Luella's true politics were studio politics of the star system. She lacked the fervor that Hedda developed for purging the film colony of anyone with a pink cast to their collar. On Luella's radio show, she used her Woodbury soapbox to ask actors to pass on any scripts that were written by those who might harbor ties to communism. Luella, though, was ready to overlook political affiliations if she really liked a star. For example, when John Garfield fell afoul of Hollywood conservatives for attending the International Peace Conference hosted by a Soviet diplomat on a Soviet ship, Luella defended him. She wrote in her column that she would stake everything she owned that John Garfield was as repulsed by communism as she was. Luella argued that Garfield was mistaken for a red because he often fought for the little guy on the big screen. One of Luella's best exclusives came when she was the lone reporter to cover Rita Hayworth's wedding to the Prince Ali Khan in 1949. Luella loved nothing more than being the first to know, and in this case, she was the only reporter in the world to get the story. Luella had first met Rita Hayworth in the Mexican resort Agua Caliente in 1935, the Hollywood hotspot I told you about in the podcast episode on Dolores Del Rio. Rita had not yet become Rita. She was Margarita Cancino, a dancer on the nightclub circuit, billed in an act with her father Eduardo. Winnie Sheehan also caught the father and daughter act in Agua Caliente, and signed Rita to the Fox studio. She was christened Rita Hayworth in the studio system and was given a makeover, which lifted her hairline and dyed her tresses auburn. When Rita was married to Orson Welles, Luella never transferred her rancor from the boy genius who smeared her chief with Citizen Kane over to Rita. After Rita and Orson divorced, Luella was and was engaged to the Prince Ali Khan, Luella was the only journalist invited to the wedding in the chateau in Cannes. Luella was determined to file a series of exclusives. If Luella's work was as trivial as her detractors in the American press claimed, why was she beset by spies during the trip? Luella's coverage of the event captured a global audience. Readers worldwide latched onto the story of the love goddess becoming an actual princess. Other journalists turned cloak and dagger to steal the story. At one point before the wedding, Luella received a telegram from the States, states with information that some of her exclusives had been stolen and were appearing in the international press outlets. The hot- hotel, it seemed, had a spy. Luella took immediate measures to beef up security and protect her copy. She filed columns by telephone rather than wire. Once she typed her columns, she kept the carbons and hid them rather than depositing them in the hotel waste bins. Luella had quite a challenge on her hands and can. The Prince Ali Khan would not allow guests to use telephones or cameras during the ceremony. Luella had planned to rush to her room in the chateau and file a copy as soon as the ceremony ended, but then the mayor of Cannes intervened and told the couple that they had to have a public ceremony in City Hall. The only telephone in the building was in the mayor's office, and he was a self-described communist. Luella forgot what she was supposed to think about communist and took the expedient route. She bribed the mayor for use of his telephone. 
During the reception back in the chateau, she staged a ruse about phoning a mutual friend to circumvent the prince's ban on telephones. As soon as the plan call for congratulations ended, she secretly dialed the examiner to file a report on the reception. While she was in Cannes, Luella filed her column with updates on the wedding. She also had radio broadcasts planned. In addition, Hearst had ordered a series of articles on the Hollywood Cinderella story that Rita embodied. After the wedding, Luella went to Paris with her secretary, Dottie May, and hired two more secretaries. She pulled a series of all-nighters. Luella wrote a series of seven articles on Rita Hayworth's life story in three days. The Hollywood Reporter commented on the series, saying that the articles were so good that many people assumed that Luella had written them before she traveled to France. The article noted, but Luella wrote it solely from memory and a couple of interviews on the spot. Get it through your noodle. The gal's a mighty good reporter. The Hollywood Reporter article didn't take pot shots against Luella as other outlets did. In the New Yorker magazine, A.J. Liebling satirized Luella's gushing romantic prose style for the wedding coverage under the title, Write Up Luella's Alley, with a play on words with alleys being spelled like Prince Alley's name. Of all the exclusives that Luella broke, she perhaps felt most guilty and haunted by the report of Ingrid Bergman's pregnancy. In her second book, Tell It to Luella, Luella minimizes that she was the first to publish the scoop, unlike every other time when she had the story first and um, blared about it. Luella first met Ingrid at the behest of David O. Selznick, a longtime friend and colleague. Luella had known him since he was in short pants. Selznick crowed that Ingrid would be the biggest star in Hollywood after he signed her for the American remake of Intermezzo. During their first meeting, Ingrid called to Luella's home, as the stars often did. Ingrid marveled over the orange tree in Luella's garden and asked if she might take one to send back to her husband in Sweden. Later, Ingrid recalled that the orange, um, when she saw Luella again, she noted that the skin had turned black by the time it arrived to her husband. It was dead, Ingrid said, welling up with emotion. Luella presents the story of the orange as a kind of foreshadowing for the film star's marriage to Peter Lindstrom. In her memoir, Ingrid cites many reasons her marriage to Peter was unhappy. He sought to control everything about her. The po-faced physician corrected her constantly for wrinkling her forehead, for talking too much, for slouching, and especially for her diet. Peter thought that Ingrid should be very thin. He policed her at every meal. Ingrid sat at the table and ate a small salad and a small glass of juice for dinner. Then she would go to her bedroom and open a jar of cookies she had hidden there. Peter would complain that she wasn't losing enough weight and make her get on the scale frequently. Each time she was cast in a picture, Peter accused her of having an affair with the leading man. Good riddance to him, he was an awful husband. It's worth noting as background that Roberto Rossellini was really the first person to leak the story about his affair with Ingrid. He betrayed Ingrid with his braggadocio. In 1949, Ingrid had sent a note to the Italian director telling him how much he admired his pictures Paisan and Rome Open City. She hoped they might have the chance to work together someday. Rossellini was flattered that one of the most talented stars in Hollywood wanted to do a picture with him. They began to correspond. Ingrid invited Rossellini to Hollywood. Before he left, he told an RKO producer that he would have her in bed within two weeks. The producer carried the boast back to Peter Lindstrom because men stick together. RKO was producing the film that Ingrid would do for Rossellini, backed by Howard Hughes. When Ingrid flew to Italy in March, 
Rossellini met her with a carefully staged seduction plan full of quaint villages and romantic road trips on their way to the shoot in Stromboli. In Amalfi, Ingrid had written a letter to her husband asking for a divorce, declaring that her future was with Rossellini in Italy. It's what she'd been looking for her whole life, she wrote. Ingrid, though, couldn't bring herself to post the letter. Roberto was incensed and he took the letter from her. But before he posted the letter, he put it on display for all of his friends, like a testament to his masculinity. He had won the star, who is an international symbol of purity and modesty, away from a lesser man. Once he bragged about it in public, the news leaked to Italian and American reporters. By April 1949, newspapers printed stories that they were having an affair. Ingrid had been enjoying hot sex in the Italian sun for about three weeks before the scandal took over her life. By the time summer rolled around, the gossip was that Ingrid was pregnant with her married director's baby, which is a much messier situation than just an onset affair. Hedda Hopper wanted answers, and she didn't rely on the phone or telegram. In August, she flew to Italy so she could look Ingrid in the eye. An RKO press agent told Ingrid that she would have to see Hedda despite her misgivings. A car drove Hedda around in a circuitous route to conceal the location of the Italian director's love nest. Ingrid greeted Hedda when she arrived as though she were a dear old friend. They made small talk. Ingrid recounted the rigors of the film shoot, where she walked up the crater of an active volcano wearing only thin sandals, inhaling strong sulfur fumes every day for weeks. A crew member had actually died of a heart attack as a result of the heat and fumes on the volcano. After an hour, Hedda got down to business and asked directly about the pregnancy rumors. Ingrid smiled and denied it. Goodness, Hedda, do I look like it? Ingrid met Hedda's interrogation with an empirical bit of evidence. Hedda stared at Ingrid's tiny waist, flew back to Hollywood, and denied the rumors in her column. Ingrid was not having Rossellini's baby. One night in December, as Luella finished her radio show, she received a message that a man was waiting for her in a car downstairs. Luella remained cagey about who it was in her memoir. All she would give away was that he was an important man in the film colony and also influential in U.S. business. When she joined him in the car, he told her that Ingrid was in fact pregnant with Rossellini's child. He couldn't tell her just how he knew, but she had to trust him on that. Luella asked why didn't he tell her that before the show when she could have broken the news on the air. The informant replied that the story was too big to break on the radio. She had to print the story in her L.A. Examiner column. The Examiner headline over Luella's byline announced that Ingrid was expecting Rossellini's child by March. Luella insisted she would not have published the item if not for the source, whom she considered rock solid. One of Hearst's other papers printed a story denying Luella's report. Hearst rang the paper's editor immediately and demanded to know why he dared shed doubt on a Parsons story. In subsequent issues, the retraction was pulled. The story broke nationwide and then globally. Everyone was talking about Ingrid and Roberto. Hedda and other industry insiders assumed that Luella's source was Joe Steele, who was Ingrid's press agent with RKO. He had spent months with her on location after she sent a letter, a letter saying how overwhelmed she was by the shoot and the romance with Roberto. Joe Steele did not give Luella the exclusive. It was none other than Howard Hughes. Hughes had been financing the picture and acted as the producer. He was impatient that the film ran so far over schedule and budget. He thought the scandal would force the lovers to end their affair and get back to work, and also that the scandal would boost the film's publicity and ticket sales. In the press, all hell broke loose. 
Condemnations of Ingrid Bergman flowed in the press like lava from the volcano on Stromboli. Ingrid was denounced on the, on the Senate floor as an instrument of evil. Upon reflection in her memoir, Luella expressed guilt over printing the story. One of her shortcomings was that she often did the, power, the bidding of powerful men. She didn't say no to Hughes, who was not only rich and formidable, he was also the studio head in RKO, where her daughter Harriet worked as a producer. When Ingrid staged her Hollywood comeback in 1957 with a Best Actress Oscar for win for her Anastasia, Luella had thought that her role in the Italian saga had been forgotten, if not forgiven. But Ingrid told a magazine writer that she blamed Luella for the whole scandal. When Luella received an invitation for a party to celebrate Ingrid, she sent a curt reply that she was unable to attend. But still, she protected Howard Hughes. During the summer of 1951, Luella had lost the two most important men in her life. First, her husband, Harry Martin, her beloved Docky, died in June. He kept the truth about his condition from Luella until weeks before he died. He had been suffering with leukemia for years. When Docky had undergone treatment, he told Luella that it was a holdover from the malaria and tropical fever he had during his wartime service. In August 1951, Luella's darling chief died. Shortly before William Randolph Hearst shuffled his mortal coil, doctors had placed Marion Davies under sedation. By the time Marion woke, Hearst's body was on its way to San Francisco for his wife and family to mourn. Marion had no chance for goodbyes. When the news broke, Hedda Hopper, along with other friends, went to Marion's side. But Luella went to join the Hearst family. Marion and Luella didn't speak together, didn't speak again together for years. After she lost Docky and Hearst, Luella tried to harness her grief through weight loss and new interest. She reduced her calories to 800 a day and slimmed down, and perhaps reinvigorated her stamina for nightlife. She was often escorted by Jimmy McHugh, a composer who reportedly saw the advantage in squiring the gossip queen around town. He introduced her to new talent he developed, voices like Eddie Fisher and Fabian. The growth of the teenage market created a demand for coverage of their film stars and popular musicians, and Luella did her best to keep up to date. She adopted teenage slang in her columns and gushed about meeting the new talent. When she was hospitalized in 1946, Luella finally had the chance to listen to Sheila Graham's radio show. Sheila was the third member of the unholy trio of Hollywood gossips, along with Luella and Hedda. You may recall I devoted podcast episode 64 to Sheila Graham. Sheila noted that if you gave Luella a scoop, she was your friend for life, and Sheila did just that. She gave Luella a story for her radio show one Sunday night, which had a double bonus because the item was leading Hedda Hopper's column the next day on Monday morning. In effect, Sheila's tip gave Luella the chance to beat her competition. The tip endeared Sheila to Luella, but not enough to give her the spot as replacement host for her radio show during the summer of 1948, when Luella sailed to Europe. Luella was not about to hand her show to a woman who could become a serious rival. As she grew older, Luella kept up the same vigor for her favorites and her feuds. During the 1950s, the studio system lost its power, and with it, the ability of publicity departments to hector stars to bend the knee for calmness. Established stars who once felt compelled to feed items to Luella or Hedda began to rebel at the old arrangement, and newer stars bristled at being asked to acknowledge the publicity system. Rising stars who did pay homage to Luella were, were rewarded with handsome coverage, such as she lavished on Marilyn Monroe. In 1952, Luella's article, The Ten Most Exciting Women, put Marilyn at the top. 
1953 at a gala in the Beverly Hills Hotel, columnist Floribel Muir reported that Marilyn Monroe stole the show in a gold lame mermaid gown by wiggling her rear at the strategic moment. Muir noted that the crowd hardly noticed Lana Turner and Joan Crawford at the same event. Joan was quoted throwing a good deal of shade at Marilyn's brazen antics, saying that the newcomer exploited sex. Luella didn't like the piece and wanted to give Marilyn a chance to respond and gain sympathy. Marilyn played the orphan card and was quoted by Luella. The thing that hit hardest about Miss Crawford's remarks is that I've always admired her for being such a wonderful mother, for taking four children and giving them a fine home. Who better than I knows what that means to homeless little ones? Oh, brother, what do mothers and orphans have to do with the opinion that you shouldn't shake ass for the wolf parade? Luella also kept Marlon Brando in her crosshairs for the first half of the 1950s, mostly because Marlon spouted heresy in interviews when he said he hated the Hollywood lifestyle. He refused to cooperate with the columnists, but he still read them. Brando sent Luella a letter that asked her to please stop mentioning him. After Luella wrote that she didn't want to look at Brando on the screen again, he fired back, please stop picking on me. You are becoming offensive, not only to me, but to other people. In the 1950s, the line in the sand for Luella was the difference between clean and dirty. She went on a crusade against depicting sexuality and challenges to the Hayes Code. Luella complained or campaigned for family-friendly pictures. She denounced the rather tame Otto Preminger film, The Moon is Blue, just because it used the word virgin and talked openly about seduction. Preminger had defeated the production code censor and the need for their certificate of approval on the basis that a hit Broadway show couldn't be offensive if, if adapted to the screen. Later, she urged MGM not to film Tennessee Williams' Cat on a Hot Tin Roof because it was immoral and offensive. In 1954, when Simone Silva was scheduled to visit Hollywood, Luella went ballistic in her column. Luella's ire was stoked by the topless publicity photos Simone Silva took with Robert Mitchum during the Cannes Film Festival. Both Simone and Bob are laughing in the photo shoot in a bit of harmless fun. In her column, Luella raged, I'm not even going to mention the name of the independent producer who is bringing her here. How dare anyone bring this girl to Hollywood? Certainly, there are plenty of other girls who do not need to strip from the waist up to get publicity. I want to be the first to protest her coming here. I guess Luella didn't know about Marilyn's nude pictorials. If it fell outside the category of family entertainment, Luella was vehemently against it. Corruption in the form of sex or drugs was ruinous to the film colony as she saw it. Luella took aim at Preminger once again for the man with the golden arm, for its frank depiction of drug addiction. Luella called for more spiritual films from Hollywood because people needed the bomb of religion during the turbulent Cold War era. When Luella's frequent escort Jimmy McHugh became Mamie Van Doren's manager, Luella used her influence to impede the progress of Mamie's career. Apparently, Luella had long-term plans for Jimmy to fill Docky's shoes, feelings which were unlikely to be reciprocated. Luella was jealous of the buxom blonde. After McHugh enrolled Mamie in a Hollywood acting school, Luella rang the owner and told him he could look forward to only negative coverage if he allowed Mamie to continue lessons. Then Luella picked up the phone and told Paramount Studio the same before Mamie's screen test. Luella continued to carry on grudges from the past as well. In one of her regular columns for Modern Screen Magazine, she reminded readers of the shame on Rex Harrison's name for his role in Carol Landis' death from an overdose. 
in the, the column, The Truth About My Feuds, from Modern Screen in May 1951, Luella continued to refer to him as Sexy Rexy, laced with sarcasm. Luella wrote, I was in Europe when Carol Landis committed suicide. That Rex had been her good friend we all knew. I had talked with Carol shortly before I left for Europe, and she told me of her great friendship for Harrison. In Parsons' moral economy, guilt is rich writ large. Then Luella goes on to excoriate Rex for a series of speeches and articles he wrote in Canada and London, attacking the American film colony. In 1955, Luella was hospitalized for exhaustion and later for a heart condition, maybe due to her crash diet regimen. She had time to reflect and reached out to Hedda Hopper. She sent Hedda a copy of her memoir with a dedication to my favorite rival. Hedda was touched and sent over a favorite hat and her own book inscribed to Luella Parsons, the queen from her lady-in-waiting. At a party later that year for Hedda, Luella delivered the toast, which asked the group to raise glasses to a gallant lady. The same year, they were part of a publicity contingent to the new hotel Conrad Hilton opened in Istanbul. Hedda realized that Luella was unprepared for the intense sun and loaned her a large brimmed hat for a day of sightseeing. Luella extended her media presence to television from the mid-1950s. In 1955, the biographical TV series Climax adapted Luella's memoir to the small screen. The producers banked on Luella's ability to get an all-star lineup for a small fee. Teresa Wright played Luella alongside a cast which include Ida Lupino, Lana Turner, Ginger Rogers, Merle Oberon, Jack Benny, Dan Daly, Bob Mitchum, and Robert Stack. Luella made an appearance at the end of the program wearing a white gown and a large gold cross. The reviews were savage, suggesting it should have been called anti-climax, and that it was nothing less than stars sucking up to Luella. One reviewer noted that the celebrity cameos looked like they were character witnesses there under subpoena, but the ratings were the highest that the show had ever had. In 1957, Pat Boone recorded Luella, 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 which you heard at the beginning of this episode. The song was written by Jimmy McHugh, the composer whom Luella pictured as husband number four. McHugh was apparently an attentive escort, but he did have ulterior motives. He brought his upcoming singers to meet her each time. McHugh had a string of hits behind him dating back to the First World War. He wrote scores for stage and screen for decades. After he wrote the song for Luella, he arranged for it to be played whenever he arrived with Luella on his arm in nightclubs, restaurants, or parties. Luella went out nearly every night into her late 70s. When the 1960s began, it looked like Hella Luella might go on forever. She had joked that she would meet her eight deadlines a week from a wheelchair if need be. She was a whirlwind of energy. Hearst's publication empire was not as robust. In 1962, the examiner folded. Bill Hearst, the chief's son, transferred key staff to another paper in Los Angeles that printed an afternoon edition and rebranded it as The Examiner. Luella was crestfallen because it meant that readers wouldn't see her column until after they finished work in the evening. By then, her hot exclusives would be ice cold. Hit pieces that shredded Luella's work and legacy appeared just as as they had back in the 1930s. Ezra Goodman, a former reporter for Time, wrote a book called The 50-Year Decline and Fall of Hollywood. In it, he printed the legend about Luella demanding replacements for the studio Christmas presents that were stolen from her car when she went around to collect them that year. He blamed her in part for the, the decline of the film industry. Luella then had a series of health emergencies beginning in 1962 that ranged from surgery to have a lobster claw removed from her throat 
to being hospitalized for shingles of the optic nerve and pneumonia. When Hedda visited her on the occasion, Luella was agitated and disoriented. Hedda rang Harry Brand, a good friend of Luella's and head of MGM Publicity. Hedda warned him that if Luella would, would never recover if she wasn't taken out of that hospital room, she didn't know if it was the same room where Harry Martin had passed or what, but if Luella stayed, she would slip away and die. After she was moved, she was on the mend. Luella's balance was eventually returned after she went again for a broken shoulder. In 1965, Luella announced her retirement. Dorothy Manners, who had worked for Luella for 30 years, took over the column. Although they shared the byline until 1966 when Dorothy Manners had sole authorship for the column. Harriet auctioned off Luella's vast collection of antiques and collectibles to finance her nursing um, nursing home care. Reports appeared that she faded out of lucid moments at the time. During one television broadcast of an old Clark Gable picture, Luella spoke to him on the screen as though he were in the room. She asked him when he planned to tie the knot with Carol Lombard. In the end, Luella outlasted most of the original stars she covered in more than 50 years of celebrity journalism. She also outlasted her number one rival. Luella died on the 9th of December, 1972. She was 91 years old. The studio system may have died with her, but the form of celebrity journalism that she pioneered is still going strong. Each time you pick up a magazine, a Sunday paper, or an online profile where a reporter meets a star of the screen for lunch and describes what they ordered and what they wore, you are reading the ghost of Luella Parsons. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time for part six, the final episode of the series.